Welcome to the podcast of New Covenant Church in Albuquerque, where we focus on the Bible, faith, and life issues. We hope this podcast will be helpful to you on your faith journey. Now, here's our message. Hey, happy Time Change Sunday, church family. How many of y'all are glad, happy about the time change, the, the springing forward one hour? Hey, Dr. Annette is our biblical counselor. I will send you all to see her, those of you that cheered. How many of you disdain losing this hour? Like, this is just awful. Just stick to the time that we were originally at. Anybody else? Okay. Good. So you're the normal people. You're my friends. Thank you. That's awesome. However, with Time Change Sundays, I've really grown to appreciate this. Joy in a cup. It's called coffee. I love it hot on cold mornings, especially when it's still dark. Love it iced in the afternoon just as a special treat. But you know what's nasty? Lukewarm room temperature coffee. Have you ever gotten a hold of that and you take a sip and you're just like, ugh, and ready to spit that out? Well, we're taking a look at a church that was like lukewarm coffee and made Jesus want to spit them out. Uh, we're also going to take a look at what is it that they did that made Jesus want to spit them out. Why did Jesus say that I would rather you be hot or cold than be lukewarm. And then there's a couple other things in this passage that we'll take a look at that maybe have been misunderstood for a while or maybe misinterpreted. So we will be using our investigative and biblical scholar skills this morning to use what we call context. We'll take a look at the culture. We'll take a look at how to observe text well, how to interpret text well, because that'll help us a ton in our study of the book of Revelation. We're on the last church. This is seven of seven. We're on the church of Laodicea. It ends with a little bit of a bummer because this church gets absolutely no commendation. They don't seem to be doing much of anything well. However, hang in there because in two weeks we're on Revelation chapter 4 verse 1 where all of a sudden the church is going to be in heaven and we're going to get a glimpse of what the glory of the throne room is going to look like. So I can't wait. So would you do this with me? Just again, out of reverence for our Lord Jesus and who he is. Most of you already know the drill. Would you just stand as we give him honor and we read from his word? Revelation chapter 4, beginning in verse 14. And to the angel of the church in Laodicea write, the words of the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of God's creation. I know your works. You are neither cold nor hot. Would that you were either cold or hot. So because you are lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. For you say, I am rich, I have prospered, and I need nothing, not realizing that you are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. I counsel you to buy from me gold refined by fire, that you may be rich, and white garments, so that you may clothe yourself, and the shame of your nakedness may not be seen, and salve to anoint your eyes, so that you may see. Those whom I love, I reprove and discipline, so be zealous and repent. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and eat with him and he with me. The one who conquers, I will grant him to sit with me on my throne as I conquered and sat down with my father on his throne. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Thank you, gang. You can have a seat. And what exactly is Jesus saying to this church? Well, I believe it's something that he's saying to our church as well. If we live for worldly pleasure, it's going to cause Jesus to spit us out. But if we're living for heavenly treasure, 
It's going to cause Jesus to lift us up, which begs a question, do we want to be a church that gets spit out, that's useless, or do we want to be a church that gets lifted up by the Lord Jesus? Now, there are multiple things in this passage that are difficult to wrestle through that we are going to wrestle through together, and we're going to follow the same pattern as we have with the other churches. Remember, there's typically five things that we take a look at, but one is missing with this church. Typically, we look at the character of Christ, then we take a look at the commendation he gives to the church, then we take a look at the criticism that he has for that church, then we take a look at the challenge that he has for that church, then the counsel given to that church. We'll look at four of the five because there's no commendation for this church. So we'll find out why, and then we'll find out how to avoid being a church that Jesus doesn't have anything to commend them for. So let's start in like manner. Chapter 3, verse 14, Jesus starts by presenting his character to the church in Laodicea. Now, now pay close attention to the words he uses. And to the angel of the church in Laodicea. Remember what the word church means, ecclesia. Literally means called out ones. So right off the bat, we know that he's speaking to believers. Please keep that in the back of your minds. We need that in the back of our minds as we look at the rest of this passage. He's speaking to to a church, the called out ones, the ones that have been called to himself in Laodicea that apparently got a little off track. So he is going to remind them of who he is. The words of the amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of God's creation. So what does he tell them based off his character? Well, here he speaks to his faithfulness, to his word through all of eternity. In fact, I'm going to break down the three titles that he gives of himself right here. He starts with the word amen. That kind of seems like a bit of an odd title. What are you saying, Jesus? Why are you calling yourself the amen? Well, what does the word amen mean? You're allowed, by the way, you could talk out loud even though we're sleepy. You're allowed to talk out loud. The word amen means what? Bible scholars, so be it, let it be so, it is true, any of the above. So Jesus is literally saying, I am the so be it. I am the true one. Everything that I say to you is absolutely true. There is no error in anything that I am about to tell you. Now, that has been challenged by the secular world that we live in. We live in a world that has said, you can't trust that book that you Christians read. You can't trust that Jesus. In fact, you don't even have any validity for it, which is what I'm really excited about, and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to spoil it a little bit, but we're going to be doing a little mini three-part series leading up to Resurrection Sunday, where everybody's going to be summoned to come and investigate what they see at the triumphal entry of Jesus, or what we call Palm Sunday. And then I want you to investigate what you see when he's being crucified on Friday and then investigate the empty tomb or what you'll see on Resurrection Sunday. And then you're going to give a verdict. Is this Jesus just a guru, a good teacher, some prophet? Is he a lunatic or is he actually God in flesh? Can't wait. And we're going to lead you into making a decision there. But Jesus says, I'm God in flesh. Everything that I said I was going to do, I did. Everything that was prophesied about me, I fulfilled. And it's good to know that we have somebody that we can trust and follow and know that everything that he says is 100% true because we live in a world of information overload between the internet, social media, newspapers, magazines, billboards, friends, family members, everybody seemingly telling us something different. How do we know what to believe? This is what I love about God's word. There's this little thing called evidence in a court of law. 
And the preponderance of evidence that we study in God's word leads us to know beyond a shadow of a doubt that this book that we hold in our hands is the actual word of God. Now, I love it when people come to me and say, yeah, you guys just keep on believing that. That that thing is full of, of errors and contradictions. And it was just written by men. To which I love to respond, fabulous. Then let's read it together and you just show me where we've gone wrong. Just show me the errors and show me the contradictions. I love it when people say that. Don't get turned off by that. Look at that as an opportunity. Great, just show me where. Because you know what that makes them do? Makes them pick up the Bible and read it. That's exciting stuff. Everything that Jesus says is 100% true. And I don't have any problem saying that's not meant to be arrogant. It's not coming from me. Don't trust anything I say. Check it with Scripture. But I follow one. I have a leader. I have a king. I have a God who doesn't make mistakes. And that's who we follow after. That we can stand up upon proudly. Not ourselves. There's nothing to be desired here. There's nothing to be desired in yourself. But it's all in Christ. Well, then it says he is the faithful and true witness. What does a witness do? They testify to what they know. What does Jesus know? Everything. So if you want to know where we came from, if you want to know why we exist, if you want to know where we're going when all is said and done, if you want to know how to live your life in the meantime, in the in-between, let's listen to the one who is faithful and true, who knows everything. The one who created everything, then entered into his creation, then died, then rose again. I tell you what, if I'm going to follow somebody, I want to follow somebody that's outside of time, outside of space, outside of matter, but then also entered into it, died and then defeated death, rose again and is coming again. That's the one that I want to follow. Well, here's the third thing. Jesus says, I am the beginning of God's creation. Now, our Mormon friends and our Jehovah's Witness friends teach, see, Scripture says that Jesus is actually a created being. He's not God. However, This, again, is where we have to read in what we would call context. And in this particular period of time, we want to read in what's called our literal context, or taking the the literary devices that we have. And as I unpack the word beginning, in the Greek, it's actually the word arche. The word arche literally means source or origin. So let me read it to you with a direct translation. The source of God's creation. Do you see that Jesus is not a created being? The origin of God's creation, just like it said in John chapter 1, verse 1, which again, good Bible study, says one, read in context, and two, let scripture interpret scripture. I read this and go, oh my goodness, Jesus is the beginning of God's creation. He's a created being, and all this time I thought he was God. He is God. Remember again, this should say he is the source or the origin of creation. John chapter 1, verse 1, in the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was... God, and that word was is that little Greek word ain. It's in the imperfect tense. It literally means something that happened in the past with ongoing results into the future forever, which means that Jesus always has been God and he always will be. That will never come to an end. So we want to make sure that we are studying in its literal, grammatical, historical context, and that will help us a ton. Well, now we move on to the not-so-fun part, the criticism. Verses 15 through 17, Jesus says, I know your works, and you're neither cold nor hot. Would that you were either cold or hot. So, because you're lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth, for you say, I am rich, I have prospered, I need nothing, not realizing that you're wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. What's the criticism of the church? 
What's the criticism in Laodicea? It's pride and arrogance, but yet they're drained of humility and worship. I don't doubt that at one point in time they recognized their deep and desperate need for Jesus. But somehow, in the course of time, as they made good money, as they prospered pharmaceutically, they began to get in the back of their minds, I don't really need you, Jesus. I got money. I got good health. I got a good family. I got a good house. I don't really need you. And Jesus says, man, if you were either hot or cold, I could use you, but you're neither. So I'm about ready to spit you out. Now, I want to clear up real quick. Why hot or cold? I mean, I thought hot would be good. You're on fire for Jesus. Cold would be bad. He's actually using both as positive terms. When I explain to you what life was like in the city of Laodicea, it'll make more sense. But Laodicea, if you were looking at a map and you saw Laodicea, six miles north of Laodicea is a city called Hierapolis. And just a little bit south of Laodicea was a city called Colossae. Well, north of Laodicea and Hierapolis, they were known for these bubbling hot springs. If you got some type of infection, you could go there for healing. If you had uh, joint or muscle pains, you could go there for relief. In Colossae, they were known for ice-cold drinking water. So if you wanted refreshment and wanted water that you could actually drink, you would go down to Colossae. Well, there's in Laodicea smack dab in the middle who's got no water supply at all. So they built a six-foot water aqueduct up to Hierapolis, and they would pump in Hierapolis's uh, boiling hot water. But by the time it traveled the six-mile aqueduct, think about that. It's got to travel six miles. By the time it gets there, it's nothing but lukewarm, and it's become an infestation for bacteria. And those that would drink the water would get this awful stomach disease called Giardia. If you're not familiar with Giardia, it's an awful vomiting disease that parasites would take over the stomach and the stomach tries to get rid of them and you're expelling it through vomiting over and over. Isn't that just a pretty picture? Happy Sunday, church. (laughs) But that's what Jesus uses to describe his thought about the church in Laodicea. He says, I'm going to spit you out of my mouth. Now, I want to clear up something. When Jesus says, I'm about to spit you out of my mouth, he's not saying that this is a loss of salvation. Remember, he addresses them as the church that called out once. He's just saying you're good for nothing. And you're about to lose some rewards. In fact, Scripture speaks to that over and over again. That once I belong to Christ, no one can snatch me out of his hand. Remember, he said, I and the Father are one. No one can snatch you out of my hand. Romans chapter 8 verse 1 says, There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. The end of Romans chapter 8 says, What shall be able to separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus our Lord? The answer is... Nothing, no one, that would even include myself. However, you can definitely lose rewards. Now again, we've said this before, heaven is heaven. It's going to be awesome. But man, how much more awesome is it going to be to have some rewards, some crowns to lay down at the feet of Jesus to worship him with? And he's speaking to the church in Laodicea, and they think they're fine, we're rich, we've got it made. We're developing ISAV in the pharmaceutical industry. We're doing great in the clothing industry. In fact, we're making clothes for Romans' wealthy upper class. And they're bragging about it. And Jesus says, oh man, you don't even recognize that what you are is wretched. Think about this. Imagine hearing this from Jesus. You're wretched, you're pitiable, 
You're poor, you're blind, and you're naked. Jesus gives them a real dose of reality. Well, I read something that I thought was quite funny. A young lady got a real dose of reality. She walks up to her pastor and she says, Pastor, I've, just got, I've got one sin in my life that I just can't seem to let go of. Well, what's that, my dear? Every time I walk in church, I can't help but think I am the prettiest lady in the congregation. Nobody else measures up. To which the pastor replies, young lady, don't worry about it. In your case, it's not a sin. It's just a horrible mistake. (laughs) Sorry, I kind of got a kick out of that. Remember, living for worldly pleasure is going to cause Jesus to spit us out. Living for heavenly treasure is going to cause Jesus to lift us up. I would love to be a person, a family, a church that Jesus is constantly lifting up and not having to say, hey, I'm about to spit you out because you become useless. Well, now he moves on to the challenge. You don't have to stay that way. In fact, he says in verse 18, I counsel you to buy from me gold refined by fire so that you may be rich and white garments so that you may clothe yourself and the shame of your nakedness may not be seen and salve to anoint your eyes so that you may see. Those whom I love, I reprove and discipline. So be zealous and repent. Here's the challenge that Jesus gives to the church in Laodicea. It's not bad to have money. In fact, oftentimes God will raise our standard of living so we can raise our standard of giving. That's a good thing. It's not bad to have money. Remember, don't misquote Scripture. Scripture does not say that money is the root of all evil. What does it say? Money is the root of all kinds, or the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. In other words, we could do all kinds of bad things with money. We could become prideful, we could become arrogant, we could spend it on the wrong things, or we could bless others. We could glorify the Lord. So what does Jesus say? Hey, Laodicea, hey, New Covenant, I want you to spend your time, I want you to spend your talents, and I want you to spend your treasures on the things of my kingdom and not yours. Because your kingdom is coming down someday. Think about it. One day when we breathe our last, the bank account doesn't really matter. The size of the house doesn't really matter. How fast our car goes from zero to 60 doesn't really matter. And all that time we worked on good health, well, that's kind of out the door because I'm dead. So Jesus says, why don't you spend your time, your talents, and your treasures on the things that are eternal, the things that matter? And he gives them really three pieces of advice. One, buy gold that's refined by fire. This is a figure of speech for saying, get rid of sin in your life. It's talked about in Job chapter 23. Solomon talks about it in Proverbs chapter 27 and many other places in Proverbs. The prophet Malachi talks about it in Malachi chapter 3. Refine your life. Get rid of those things that are dragging you down from worshiping the Lord for all that he's worth, from being a fully committed follower of Jesus. Just get rid of it. Gang, it's not worth it. Let me be, again, really honest with you. My wife and I have been honest with our girls. Sin is fun sometimes. It feels fun. It feels good at the moment. That's why it's called temptation. Temptation wouldn't be temptation if it wasn't tempting. So let's not lie to each other. And say that it doesn't feel good at the moment. The question is, is it worth it? Because those are fleeting pleasures. 
But the psalmist in Psalm 16, verse 11, told us eternal pleasures are at God's right hand, which means that I can find eternal pleasure forever at the right hand of God, things that can never be taken away. So why not rid ourselves of the very things that were killing us prior to knowing Christ? Why keep going back to those things? Get rid of them. Then he says, when you do, you'll be clothed in white garments. In other words, your nakedness or your sin won't be exposed. I feel for politicians when it's election season because anything they've ever done wrong in their life gets exposed. But do you know, you want to know how to keep that from happening? Don't do dumb things. Don't do sinful things. And that way you can be like the people that Peter wrote to when he says, when they do slander you, let them be ashamed for what they've said. I've had times in my life where I have done dumb things and people have exposed it and I felt really bad. Then there have been other times in my life where people have flat out attacked my character or who I am because they didn't like the preaching of the gospel. Hey, praise the Lord. Bring that on. I love it when we get slandered for preaching the gospel. Love it. Because you know what that means? Satan's getting riled up. God's moving. Let people slander us all they want for the preaching of the gospel. Okay, bear with me. For just a moment, because I'm going to get super politically incorrect. And guess what? Jesus was too. As soon as we start to preach the truth of the gospel, that there is one God who created one man and one woman to live in a relationship with each other as one man and one woman till death do them part, that there is a God who loves us so much that he made promises that he's going to keep, that there is only one God and there is only one way to heaven, that that one God and that only one way to heaven rose again from the grave and he is coming again. You're going to make evolutionists mad. You're going to make atheists mad. You're going to make the LGBTQIA, ABCDEFG plus mad. You're going to make all kinds of people mad. And I tell you what, when you do, that's okay because you've made the right people upset. We just made some of the right people upset today. And we have to be okay with that. We have to ask, who are we living to please? Now, all that to be said, we would welcome anybody and everybody and their mother to come to know Jesus and to step foot in our church doors so they can hear the good news of the gospel message because there's redemption for our cult friends, there's redemption for our atheist friends, there's redemption for our homosexual friends, there's redemption for our transgender friends, there's redemption for our lukewarm friends, there's redemption for anybody and everybody that is willing to hear and respond to the gospel message. That's the good news of Jesus. That's the good news of the gospel call. Now some immediately have already tuned out what it is that we're saying about redemption because you have become arrogant and bigoted and you're a hater because you're saying there's only one way. But I tell you what, again, truth by definition is always exclusive. There is only one way, there's only one hope, there's only one truth, and there's only one life. And if that's not true, then Jesus lied and everything that we read in this book is a lie. However, again, I would encourage you put it to the test. Is our Jesus amazing? Is our Jesus awesome? Is he the only one worthy of being worshipped? Would anybody in this room stand up and say yes to that? Yes. Amen. Thank you, Larry. Yeah, you can actually, yeah, exactly. Some of you all stood up. I love it. Some stood on their chairs. I love it. Well, he goes on to say, not only do I want you to buy gold refined by fire, and not only do I want you to put on white garments, but put on salve to anoint your eyes. Again, he's using an analogy they're familiar with. People would get some kind of eye disease, and they would put on this salve that would help heal it up. 
Well, he's saying you've got a bigger problem than a physical eye disease. You've got a spiritual eye disease. You're blind to what is going on around you. You're blind to who Jesus is, and I want you to be able to see. You're blind because you're getting distracted. Now, again, being honest with each other, didn't you all get distracted this week? Any of you all just get a little bit distracted from what actually matters most, and you begin to put your eyes on things that are temporal and don't matter? Did any of you all find yourself getting upset or sad or angry over things that really just don't matter this side of heaven? I would hope and I would pray that we would get upset or sad or angry over the things that do matter, that we would get excited and joyful and exuberant over the things that actually do matter. Well, Jesus says, hey, outside of the challenge, let me give you some counsel. Starts in verse 20, behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and eat with him and he with me. And the one who conquers, I will grant him to sit with me on my throne, as I also conquered and sat down with my father on his throne. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. What's the counsel that he gives? Well, he says to the church in Laodicea, get back into intimate fellowship with me. Unlike what many have preached about this passage, I don't think that this is necessarily a salvation passage. That this is Jesus saying, hey, invite me in. He's saying to a church, a called out group of believers, we need to be back in intimate fellowship again. You're doing all kinds of stuff that looks good, but I'm not a part of it. Make me a part of it again. Again, remember, we always read in context. So Jesus not only says, am I knocking at the door, but I want to come in and eat with you and you with me. We live in the world of fast food and microwave stuff. We grab a quick cup of coffee with somebody else or a burger. But in their day, in 95 AD, in first century Palestine, to have a meal with somebody was to say that I accept you. I accept what you teach. I accept how you live. I accept what you do. The negative counterpart of that is found in 1 Corinthians chapter 5. The Apostle Paul is writing to the church in Corinth, and he says to the church in Corinth, if, if there is somebody that is living an ungodly life, sexually immoral, don't even eat with such a person. Now, maybe you've read that and just breeze right over it, but that is the concept of table fellowship. Jesus is saying, no, you don't have these traveling preachers that are preaching a false gospel come in and have a meal with you, because when you do, you have just told the rest of the world that you are in agreement with what it is that they are teaching or what it is that they are doing. He says, be very careful of the message that you have put forth. Christ says, I want to come in and have intimate fellowship with you if you would just invite me. Would any of you in the church of Laodicea just invite me in? Well, then he moves from the dining room to the throne room. Check this out. He goes from saying, come and eat with me to, if you really know me, I'm going to grant you a place to sit with me as co-heir. Man, I, again, I don't know what that's going to look like, but I can't wait to see what it's like to be, as a follower of Jesus, one who gets to sit down and be a co-heir with the creator of the universe. And then he finishes this passage just like he does with his letters to the other six churches with saying, he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. See, it would be really easy to hear this and just breeze right past it and really not do anything with it. It's not in your notes, but if I could give you a challenge as a church body, I'm going to ask each one of you, when you leave this place, would you pray through your day planner for the week and your checkbook for the week? 
and ask yourself, where is my time, where is my talent, and where is my treasure being given? Where is my time, where is my talent, and where is my treasure being given? Take a look at your day planner, take a look at your checkbook. It will tell you much about where your treasure is at. Let me rephrase that. It'll tell you much about where your heart is at, which will determine where your treasure is going to be. Let me close with this. There was a man named Henry Morrison. You may or may not know the name at all. Henry Morrison was a missionary to African people for over 40 years of his life. When he finally came back and the ship docked in New York Harbor, Theodore Roosevelt just happened to be on the exact same ship. And when he got back, thousands of people were cheering for Teddy Roosevelt as the president. There wasn't a single person there at the New York dock to welcome in Henry Morrison, who had spent over 40 years of his life witnessing to the people of Africa. As he walked down the gangplank, it says that Morrison was quite depressed and even mumbling to himself, I can't believe that there was anybody here to greet me after 40 years of serving the Lord in a foreign country. To which he heard a still small voice tell him, hey Henry, don't worry about it, you're not home yet. Think about that, you're not home yet. Then the Lord gave him just a little glimpse in his mind of thousands of African people cheering him on as he enters into heaven and thanking him for sharing the gospel. Let me, let me ask you this this morning. Who do you know that doesn't yet know Jesus? Who do you know that desperately needs to hear the gospel? Is it a neighbor, a coworker, a family member? Is it somebody at the checkout line where you go grocery shopping? Is it somebody at the gym? Wherever we go, we have a great opportunity to share the goodness of Jesus. Again, I want to remind us, you may be saying to yourself, that's great for you, pastor, I'm not an evangelist. You don't have to be a soapbox preaching evangelist to simply walk up to somebody and just say, hey, can I tell you why this day is amazing? Because I serve the one who made the day. I heard this in a song on Caleb the other day, and that is that we may not know what the day brings, but we know who brings the day. Just introduce somebody to the one who brings the day. Hey, can I tell you about Jesus? Most people have not looked at me ever once and said, forget you, and walked away. Well, sure, I guess. Hey, I just want to let you know that this day is amazing, and whatever other days God gives me on this planet are going to be amazing, because the one that made me also came and died for me and rose again. I just had to share that with you, and I just want to let you know that the one that made you and died for you and rose again would love to, to be in intimate relationship with you also. It's not anything controversial about that, not a reason for anybody to get upset. They still might, but chances are not very high. Well, I don't know if you're getting any applause right now. I don't know if you're getting any accolades right now, but I would tell you that even if you're not, don't worry, you're not home yet. So just keep walking with Jesus and just keep reminding yourself, living for worldly pleasure, it's going to make us useless and Jesus is going to spit us out. But living for heavenly treasure, oh man, it's going to cause Jesus to lift us up. And there's no better place to be than lifted up by the Lord Jesus himself. Can I pray for us? You have to say yes, because I have the microphone. Okay, good. Jesus, we come before you and we praise you for who you are. We tell you now that we love you and we thank you, Lord, for the fact that you never give up on us. We think of even this church in Laodicea, how you told them, be zealous and repent. You didn't even give up on that church. 
And so, Lord, we take time now to tell you that we love you and we are so thankful that you don't give up on us. That even when we deserve to be spit out long ago, that you continued to love on us and pursue us. And Lord Jesus, may we bring you honor and bring you glory all the rest of the days of our lives. It's in the mighty name of Jesus that we pray together. Amen. Amen. Well, gang, uh, I'm gone next week. I get to go visit my oldest in Phoenix at Grand Canyon University. But what we're going to get into in two weeks from today is chapter 4 of the book of Revelation. Revelation chapter 4, verse, or verse 1, all the way through the end of Revelation 22, is the third section of the book of Revelation. Is the longest one. We'll be in it the rest of the year. And beginning in chapter 4, beginning in the very first verse, he says, After this I looked and behold a door standing open in heaven. And then we get a little glimpse of what heaven is going to be like. I pray that that fires you up. In the in-between time, Pastor Steve Stucker is going to preach on the brevity of life next week. What a great transition. We get to go from the brevity of life to eternity in heaven. Steve gets, Steve gets the brevity of life. I get eternity in heaven. Sorry, Steve. Thanks for taking it, brother. Poor Steve. He looks at me and he goes, yeah, thanks, pastor. When you were preaching through the book of Ephesians when you first started here, you preach all the way up to the point of, hey, wives, submit to your husbands. Slaves, obey your masters and children, obey your parents. Hey, Steve, that one's yours. I, I honestly didn't plan it that way on purpose. The Lord just has a way of working things out. <laughs> With that being said, gang, we have got a city that needs Jesus. Amen. We have got approximately 600,000 people in this city, most of which have yet to trust Jesus as Lord and Savior. Is the field ripe for harvest? Absolutely. Guess who the laborers are? It's us. There's no plan B. Gang, you ready to go give Albuquerque Jesus? Are we standing for something at this point, or are we go? That we are not. I just saw them behind me, and they scared me. Gang, go give them Jesus. Have a great week. This concludes today's message. We thank you so much for listening. We'd love for you to connect with us. You can do that at our website, nccabq.org. From there, you can submit any questions, feedback, and your prayer requests. NCCABQ.org is also where you can learn more about New Covenant Church. Subscribe to our podcast and newsletters, browse our online message archive, and even tune in and watch the stream of each weekly message. We hope you'll join us. Have a great week.